Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, and welcome to Wealthion. I'm James Conner. At Wealthion, we are always striving to introduce you to expert speakers who can provide insights on where to invest. And we're always looking for new speakers to expand our knowledge base. So if you have any suggestions on who you would like to see on the Wealthion channel or any subject matters that you would like to see us discuss, please let us know in the comments below. Our guest today is Rick Rule of Rule Investment Media, and we're going to get Rick's views on the economy, the markets, and where we should invest our capital in the resource sector. Rick, thank you very much for joining us today. How are things in the great state of Washington? <laughs> James, things are wonderful. The better for being on with you. I've been a longtime fan of Wealthion. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. So, Rick, before we dive deep into the economy and the markets, I want to ask you one question. Many people are moving from various states and they're going to the state of Florida because the advantageous tax base there, and including your neighbor, Jeff Bezos. He just left Seattle and he's moving to Miami. And I'm curious, why did you leave California and move to Washington State? I did it for a few reasons. One was arithmetic. Uh, Mr. Bezos is anticipating the fact that the Washington governor, uh, Inslee, uh, as he is called, Grimsley, as I call him, uh, is proposing uh, an income tax in the state of Washington, or more precisely, an excise tax on income, since the state of Washington, uh, since the law doesn't permit an income tax. And Bezos is anticipating that moving to Washington. Uh, I moved from California to Washington for a couple reasons. One was ar arithmetic. Uh, California had a capital gains tax and California had an income tax and Washington didn't. Uh, pretty good arithmetic. I also attended university at the University of British Columbia and began my, Brit my business career as an American immigrant into Canada. And I developed a real fondness for the Northwest. So it was always my intention after I became less active in business to relocate to the Pacific Northwest, where despite the rain, uh, I really like the circumstance. I like the people here. I like the terrain here. I even like the weather here. So a combination of arithmetic and lifestyle is what brought me to the Northwest. Yeah, it is a beautiful part of the world. And maybe one of these times when we do one of these interviews, we can do it in your part of the world on a fishing trip. I, I, I look forward to that. I absolutely look forward to it. If, if not in Washington, then up in Vancouver, where I also frequent. So, Rick, let's move on now and discuss the economy. There's a lot going on in the world, and it doesn't matter if you're looking at Ukraine or the Middle East or the Red Sea or what's happening in China and, and the implosion there. 
But why don't we begin with the U.S. economy? It continues to be very strong and it's catching many people off guard. It's growing at about 5%. The jobless rate is also very low. We had a very strong CPI number come out recently, and that would imply that inflation is still a problem. And just on the back of that CPI number, the Fed funds market was projecting six rate cuts this year in 2024. Now it's projecting three rate cuts and so why don't we just start here with the U.S. economy? What's your view? What's your sense of what's happening? Well, as you point out, uh, the U.S. economy is performing by most standards very well. Uh, I myself am amazed that the key stats have hung in as well as they were uh, against what is really a doubling of nominal interest rates over the last two and a half or three years. Uh, in truth, uh, it is an economy that isn't benefiting all people. Uh, people like me, uh, with readily marketable skills and access to credit, uh, are doing extraordinarily well in this economy. There are other people, uh, people who operate in a service economy, that'll say, yes, there's a lot of jobs. I have to have three of them to make ends meet. So the benefits are probably not being distributed in the economy as well as people would want. I, I think it needs to be stated, too, that part of the strength, at, le at least of the U.S. economy, has to do with the continued availability of liquidity and credit. And if we have a circumstance, uh, who knows what might cause that, that would cause confidence in and itself to fail. When confidence fails, liquidity falters. And, and so I think that the, there are areas of concern uh, around the domestic economy in the United States. For me, the primary uh, area of concern is absolutely out of control spending uh, at the federal, state, and local level, which is to say, to me, the biggest risk in the U.S. economy, uh, absent the unspoken risk of nuclear war, of course, uh, is the absolutely out of control level of government spending. There are other risks, too, but I need to say at the beginning that the strength in the U.S. economy is really, truly surprising. Uh, again, it doesn't benefit all people. I, I'll say of interest in the little town where I live, there's such a labor shortage that uh, entry-level workers at the local supermarket, Safeway, are paid $20 an hour. That seems like a stupendous wage until you consider that the median rental uh, in the town that I live in is $2 a foot a month, which is to say a $20 an hour uh, entry level worker at Safeway still has to live with his or her mommy and daddy uh, because they can't afford the rents uh, in our town. And I think that's sort of a, uh, a way to describe the current state of the U.S. economy. No, you raised some very good points there. And um, I just want to go back and talk about inflation because we saw this CPI number that came out recently. There was a lot of strength there. And I think a lot of the strength came from the services section or the services sector. And once again, the prices of everything that we consume is going up. That's right. And I think you and I have discussed before the fact that the CPI, while it's a commonly referred to standard for the rate of inflation, isn't. Uh, the CPI, first of all, is hedonistically adjusted, uh, which means that the people who put together the index assign arbitrary values to the places that you live and the technology that you buy, not with the price you pay, but rather the value that they ascribe to it. 
Uh, two, when it's inconvenient, it doesn't include food or fuel, which makes it to me a useless index because I drive, I fly, and I eat. Uh, the scariest thing about the CPI uh, is that it doesn't include the largest household expense that Americans face, which is tax. Uh, the idea that you have a cost of living uh, index that doesn't include a sector that consumes 40% of many household budgets seems very silly to me. <clears throat> when I attempted to create a crude index for the basket of goods and services that I consume, uh, what I come up with is that the purchasing power of my U.S. dollar savings seems to be deteriorating by about 7% compounded. Uh, that's going to vary from viewer to viewer, but I would really consider that uh, both the strength of the CPI is a concern, but a larger concern is the fact that for most people, it's an absolutely irrelevant index. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a floating abstraction. It's a talking point. And one threat that I think investment markets have is that if more people need come to understand the pernicious nature of the deterioration of the value of their U.S. dollar savings in terms of purchasing power, that that in and of itself uh, might create uh, a risk. I remember, uh, James, I'm enough older than you that I would remember firsthand the fact that in the early part of the decade of the 70s, uh, while the hallmarks of inflation were everywhere, nobody paid attention because they'd lived through the 50s and the 60s. They'd lived through 20 years of benign economic climate. So their expectation of the future was set on a particularly benign past. And I think that we have a bit of that uh, today. I think that what is likely to happen is that at some point in time in the future, people look at the impact of inflation on their savings and their wages and notice the discrepancy between what they experience and what's stated in the CPI and that the then expectation of and fear of inflation changes very much in the way it did in the decade of the 70s. And I think that that might, that might involve a change in investor and consumer behavior. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I I look at the strength of the U.S. economy, and I think the conclusion that I come to is that despite uh, our faults in the West, that we still have uh, a relatively free society and economy, and that we still exist in a place where a bunch of pimply-faced kids can take over a garage in Sunnyvale, California, and out pops Google or out pops Apple or out pops Microsoft, which is to say, I'm delighted and surprised at the fact that our individual initiative and, uh, you know, resourcefulness and capacity still can finance our collective stupidity. Uh, I don't know how long that lasts, but I'm delighted <laughs> that it has. No, you raised some very good points there. And when it comes to the CPI, I agree 100%. Anything the government Whatever the government says, I just double it, right? So if they're saying inflation's running at 4%, I just round it up to 8%, right? And even that might be quite conservative. Now, you mentioned something about debt and the record debt levels really concern you. But we've heard people talk about debt levels now for decades. And even though the numbers keep going up by trillions every year, it really doesn't seem to slow down the economy. It doesn't really have a negative impact on the economy. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, 
problem is not a problem until it is a problem. Uh, right now, we exist uh, in a market that's dominated by confidence. The old parable that uh, if you have obligations of a million dollars, you have income of $50,000, you have expenses of $55,000, but you have $10,000 in your pocket, <laughs> you aren't broke till the 10000 wears out. Uh, and then, in fact, you are broke. Uh, my concern is that the impact of the debt won't be felt until it is. My concern is that at some point in time, I'm not saying it has to happen soon or that it has to happen at all. My concern is that at some point in time, we have a 2008 style event. But unlike 2008, we no longer have the financial flexibility to print and spend our way out of it as easily as we did then. It's worthy to note that the fiscal measures that uh, occurred subsequent to the 2008 global financial crisis occurred in the context of uh, U.S. government debt being less than 30% of GDP. U.S. government debt is now 115% of GDP, which is to suggest, first of all, that the problem is larger, and second of all, the scope uh, for dealing with the problem, either by way of quantitative easing or by way of fiscal policy, which is to say uh, expenditures, is substantially more constrained. Uh, I'm not trying to say that this necessarily bites us, or if it does bite us, that it bites us next week. I am suggesting that individual investors and savers who don't take into account both debt and deficits and the possibility of a confidence-inspired liquidity squeeze are doing themselves a very broad disservice. You're concerned about the U.S. market and the high debt levels. What about when you look outside of the U.S.? Let's look at Europe. Let's look at Asia. I guess there's, from what I read, uh, Germany's slowing down right now. Japan is slowing down. Are you concerned about any of these events? Yeah, I mean, Germany's an own goal. Uh, it is their own decisions that have contributed to their demise. The idea, as an example, that you rely on Russian gas uh, or even stranger, that you rely on solar in a place where the sun doesn't shine, uh, seems extremely odd. Uh, the basics of the German economy, German ingenuity, uh, the newly liberalized, when I say newly, 20 years ago, liberalized labor markets <clears throat> mean that if the Germans stopped being stupid, they could start being prosperous again uh, pretty immediately. The difficulty they have as part of the Euro community is the bifurcation of Europe, which is to say the Northern Europeans, which generate wealth, and the Southern Europeans that consume it. And it would seem that the Southern Europeans can consume wealth faster than the Northern Europeans can generate it, particularly given the own goals that the Germans in particular, but also the Dutch, seem to be inflicting uh, against themselves. Um, I need to say that the relative strength of the U.S. dollar relative to the euro says a lot about the relative performance of the U.S. economy relative to the European economy. Uh, if the U.S. economy is sclerotic, I don't know what that really means that the European economy is. But whatever the word is, it isn't a very pleasant word. Um, I am increasingly attracted to the performance of emerging and frontier markets economies. I'm not trying to say that there aren't risks there. But when I look at the growth of the middle class and the gradual liberalization of economies in places like India and Malawi 
and Nigeria and uh, Indonesia. I'm impressed with what we have the ability to achieve. When I say we, I mean our species has the ability to achieve over the next 10 years. You know, it's important that we look back over 30 years and we ascribe much of the increase of global wealth all the way back to Deng Xiaoping saying to be rich is glorious and the incredible advances that we've enjoyed as a consequence of the uh, increasing liberalization, urbanization of the Chinese people. And I think one of the undercurrents that we're seeing around the world is that places that were desperately poor are now merely poor. <laughs> and I think part of the undertone that gives me a bit of hope is that uh, emerging and frontier markets will provide a greater boost to the economy over the next 10 years uh, than is broadly supposed. This is an important part, by the way, of the commodities investment thesis, too. In order for those economies to function, uh, there is a whole bunch of material consumption of infrastructure that needs to be consumed. If you look at the impact of uh, on commodity production, uh, around the urbanization of China, you will get some sense of the investment that will be required to bring that level of urbanization uh, and wealth to countries like India and Indonesia and Nigeria. But I do think it's going to occur in fits and starts. Uh, and that, I think, is extremely bullish. So that's a good overview of what's happening in the global economy and, and how you see it. I want to move on now and discuss the assets on on how we can invest and how we can make money, because that, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. The last time we spoke in Q4 of 23, you were very bullish on oil and very bullish on that gas. Are you still? Absolutely. I mean, the easiest theme to follow for the next five years or so uh, is oil and gas. That isn't to say uh, a global synchronized recession wouldn't slow down the train. Uh, but the truth is, at today's commodity prices, the oil industry in particular makes a lot of money. And the discrepancy between uh, in BTU pricing between natural gas and oil likely means that that delta uh, resolves upward for natural gas rather than downward for oil. <clears throat> the big thinkers would have you say and believe that uh, peak oil demand will occur in 20, 2030 for political reasons. They neglect to say that if that happens, they won't be able to fly their private jets to Davos because there won't be anything to fuel them. Uh, as we said in the last interview, James, but for those people who didn't listen to it, uh, their prescription for the future is alternative energies. We have now spent $5 trillion on alternative energies, and we've reduced the market share of hydrocarbons from a high of 82% all the way down to 81%, which is to say a $5 trillion investment has made an infinitesimal impact on the market share of fossil fuels. As we bring uh, the 3 billion people on the world at the bottom of the demographic curve, up the demographic curve, uh, part of the ascent of humankind in a material sense is all around energy and energy density. The oil and gas business, I think, will continue to be a very good business for 40 years. But the companies are being priced like the half-life of their economics is in six or seven years, which is absolutely wrong. Uh, an intelligently constructed uh, portfolio, even of oil majors, 
but better, uh, including mid-caps on both sides of the 49th parallel, will outperform, I think, almost every index, equity index available in the next five to 10 years. And why do you say that? Well, for a bunch of reasons. First of all, these companies, despite the best efforts of their governments to wreck them, are horrendously profitable. Uh, they are making boatloads of money. Because of the political headwinds that face oil and gas, many companies, particularly state-controlled companies, Pemex, PDVSA, YPF, uh, aren't making the sustaining capital investments necessary to maintain their production, which means that we will have production shortfalls two or three years out, which means that prices will stay firm. Uh, even at these prices, uh, intelligent companies are making a whole bunch of money. And there are a bunch of companies on both sides of the 49th parallel that are making the sustaining capital investments that will maintain production two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. And paradoxically, the political policies of Biden and Trudeau guarantee that this will be an immensely profitable business, despite all of their efforts to the contrary. This is a business that's doing incredibly well, despite the efforts of the politicians to wreck it. And I believe that voters on both sides of the 49th parallel, and in Europe too, will come to their senses. So I think that the politics of oil and gas will get better. The business couldn't get better, although it might. You have the bellwether as an example. This is not a buy recommendation, although I own it. The bellwether, uh, Exxon, uh, probably the best track record uh, in capital deployment. Uh, among the majors going back 30 years, uh, is selling at a very low multiple to free cash flow, a very low multiple to earnings. They are making uh, enough investment to maintain their production profile while saying that they're going to increase returns to shareholders via dividends and buybacks by 14% this year at the same time that they made an extraordinary $60 billion investment in Pioneer over and above their sustaining capital investments. And while they have a series of discovery offshore Guyana, 11 billion recoverable barrels, that's actually big enough to move Exxon. Uh, I'm not using Exxon as a buy recommendation. I'm using it as a uh, sort of a classroom style way to describe the overall attractiveness of the oil and gas business in investors' portfolio. I uh, wrote a paper about 30 years ago, which got fairly broad distribution then. Uh, and it called about, it, it talked about the discrepancy between uh, yield investors and growth investors. And, and I talked about some of the mature companies and resources. The title of the paper is Yield or Growth? Why Not both. And the beauty, I think, of the oil and gas industry on both sides of the 49th parallel is that for the next five to 10 years, there is a subset of co companies that will deliver both uh, free cash flow and net present value growth and extraordinary current yields. Um, that's a lot of fun. And Rick, the, the price of oil has been hanging in relatively well, it's hanging you know, in between 70 to $80 a barrel. And given everything that's going on in the world, I know you don't like throwing out price targets, but are you surprised it's, it's not higher? No, I'm not surprised it's not higher. Um, uh, we have a fair bit of oil. Uh, the price of oil spiked to 90 or 95 uh, on the fear of Russian sanctions. Uh, what happened is that we uh, only politically sanctioned Russian oil. The Russian oil is flowing very well. 
it just has come to be called uh, Indian oil or Indonesian oil or some other kind of oil. It is true that the flow of Russian natural gas has been constrained, which is why the differentials in European natural gas pricing and North American uh, natural gas pricing. Uh, we actually have uh, adequate supplies of oil at these prices. What we have is unrealistically low market capitalizations and unrealistically high cost of capital as a, as a consequence really of politics. Uh, large institutional investors are being asked to reduce their oil and gas portfolios because the portfolios are run by managers, not by investors. Uh, increasingly, they're complying, uh, which lowers the market capitalization of companies and also increases the cost of their debt capital. For capital providers like myself, people who buy oil and gas shares or lend money to oil and gas companies, this is the best possible circumstance. So you're really bullish on uh, oil and also not gas. Let's move on to something else that's very near and dear to your heart, and that's gold. And I'm also a holder of gold and gold equities. But I have to admit, Rick, I'm a little frustrated with this trade. And physical gold was up 10% last year, give or take. But a lot of the stocks were underperforming big time. And even now, like we're only two months into the new year, Newmont's down 20% on the year, Barrick's down 20% on the year. It doesn't look good. Give me your thoughts on gold and gold equities. Well, despite my age, at 71 years of age, I'm trying to become richer. And trying to become richer involves buying high quality assets at fairly inexpensive prices. So while you're discouraged by the gold trade, I'm elated by the gold trade. Uh, I would like to buy more gold stocks, in particular high quality gold stocks. And the fact that they're selling at prices which I consider to be attractive <laughs> is wonderful for me. Uh, I realize that I'm different uh, than uh, a lot of people. I wanna differentiate too between investing in gold itself and investing in the gold stocks. I own gold as insurance. I own it because I'm afraid. I began adding substantially to my physical gold holdings in 1998, admittedly a couple of years early. But I noticed that since 2000, the gold price has gone from $256 an ounce to something like $2,000 an ounce. Uh, an 8 or 8.2% 8 compound annualized rate of return. Gold did exactly what I asked it to. Exactly what I asked it to. And it did it uh, in a circumstance where, first of all, the denominator, the U.S. dollar, also did well against every other currency in the world, which is to say, if you were saving in any currency other than the U.S. dollar, including the Canadian dollar, uh, you did better in gold than I did. But it also did well in a circumstance where people weren't concerned. People weren't fearful. What really moves the gold price is uh, a lack of faith in savings instruments denominated in fiat currencies, in particular in the U.S. dollar. And my suspicion is that as the really truly pernicious impact of inflation, true inflation, not the CPI, begins to bite people, that their uh, fear of inflation and their receptiveness to uh, inflation-oriented investment techniques, including gold, will increase. In our last interview, James, uh, I mentioned that the market share of precious metals and precious metals-related securities 
in the U.S. market, I can't comment on the Canadian market, but in the U.S. market was less than one half of 1%, which is to say that the market share of gold and silver, precious metals related assets relative to every other asset class is less than one half of 1%. The four decade mean market share was 2%. If the fear of inflation, among other things, uh, begins to catch people's notice, my suspicion is that the market share of precious metals will revert to mean. It'll go from one half of 1% to 2%. That would generate a fourfold increase in demand for precious metals and precious metal securities. And that's precisely what I think is going to occur. Will it occur tomorrow? Likely not. Uh, I don't expect uh, a U.S. interest rate cut in the near term. Uh, and I don't expect an immediate diminishment in confidence in the U.S. market, which means that 2024 might be fairly benign. Uh, and then, and hence, demand for gold could be constrained. Uh, that doesn't really matter to me. Uh, I've come to learn that my life seems to be denominated in five to 10 year cycles, not five to 10 week cycles. Now, the gold stocks are different than gold. Uh, the gold stocks have, uh, the gold stocks are trading as cheaply relative to the gold price as they have ever been in my career. Partly, I think that's a function of the fact that speculators don't own gold for the reasons I do. They don't care about 8% compound returns. They want some number like they experienced in the 1970s. And they think that the fact that they want something is somehow relevant, which it isn't. Uh, but I think, too, that the structure of the gold stock market, which is to say the performance of the, of the gold mining companies as companies, has left a lot to be desired. In the period 2000 to 2010, the gold prices, you recall, ran from something like $250 to something like $1,750. And the free cash flow among an index of senior gold and silver stock, silver producers, declined. It took amazing skill to take a sevenfold increase in the selling price of their product and turn it into a decline in free cash flow. The consequence of that is that gold investors in general, and particularly generalist investors, looked at the gold mining sector as a place where capital goes to die. Uh, the event that you would want, a rapid increase in the gold price, <laughs> delivered a decrease in the first year cash flow. Now, I would like to point out to investors that the institutional investors are keeping the gold mining companies on a much tighter lease now. And most of the management teams that provided presided over that diminishment in value have been allowed to pursue uh, other employment activities. They're doing something else. Coming down from there, uh, all the way down to the junior companies, uh, we've talked about this before. If you invest in that sector as a sector, you will go broke. Uh, the 2,500 or so companies that uh, populate the global universe of junior mining companies, were you to merge them all together, call them Junior uh, junior Explorco or something like that, that company in a very good year would lose $2 billion. Uh, in a bad year, it would lose $8 billion. So the sector as a whole is where capital goes to die. That obscures the fact that maybe 5% of those issuers generate such superb returns that they add legitimacy and sometimes luster 
to a business that loses between two and eight billion dollars a year. This is all about stock picking. This is all about disciplining yourself as an investor. This is all about regarding gold mining companies as companies, not merely as proxies for gold. And I think that we're in a uniquely good period to do that because there's no competition among other investors. Let's look at a little arithmetic just for fun to illustrate this. Franco Nevada, from my point of view, the preeminent gold mining equity on the planet, lowest mining, lowest management expense ratio, highest operating margin, uh, loses Cobre Panama, at least temporarily, which accounted for 15% of net asset value. And the stock declines by 42%. Now, let's make this dollars and cents. You start with a dollar bill. Somebody takes away a dime and a nickel. Somebody takes away 15 cents. And the consequence of that is that the company now sells for 68 cents. <laughs> what kind of arithmetic is this? In particular, because if you look at the Cobre Panama situation, you come to understand that there's $8 billion invested in that mine, that the mine uh, constituted 25 or 26% of Panama's export earnings and 7 or 8% of GDP. And if they actually uh, have to go through international arbitration, there will almost certainly be a judgment against the Republic of Panama in favor of uh, First Quantum uh, and Franco Nevada. Uh, but more likely, uh, over two or three years, there will be a political resolution to the dispute. But even if there's not a political resolution, you have a circumstance where sentiment caused a market where 15% of net asset value came off to decline by 42%. This is a wonderful circumstance. If you are an investor that doesn't require the psychological support of a market. Uh, if you understand that a market isn't a source of information, but is rather a facility for buying and selling fractional ownership in businesses, the idea that these better businesses uh, get sold off continually is, if you are a true investor, a huge benefit to you. Yes, you bring up a lot of good points there. I mean, Franco Nevada is one of the premier royalty companies in the world, if not the premier royalty company, but very unique situation. So I want to go back and look at the producers. Okay. Let's look at Newmont. Let's look at Barrick. And depending on whose research you look at, um, these stocks are trading at $1,600 gold. Okay. And meanwhile, the actual spot price is around $2,000 gold. Do you think the price of gold has been artificially kept up by buying by the central banks because they, they have been very aggressive uh, buyers in recent years, and, and to your point earlier, all they're trying to do is protect their reserves of U.S. dollars. But I guess my question to you is, if the if the central banks stop buying, the price of gold, I would think, would drop quite significantly. And therefore, producers like Newmont and Barrick are really factoring in the true gold price. I disagree with that from two points of view. Uh, the first is that I think that we are coming into a period where while U.S. dollar hegemony does not end, it becomes less important. I think the uh, export of U.S. political will through the weaponization of the U.S. dollar and the weaponization of the U.S. securities markets means that countries outside the U.S. increasingly have to buy gold to trade with each other outside the U.S. dollar. I don't believe that the BRICS currency will ever get off the ground because I don't think those companies trust each other. Increasingly, they don't trust us either. 
And I think that gold will, uh, in terms of international trade, regain its status as money. Uh, I don't think that the Chinese are buying gold because they want to. I think the Chinese are buying gold because they recognize that they have to. They don't want to settle trade in Russia with rubles. Uh, the ruble is a worse floating abstraction than the U.S. dollar. People who buy crude oil from Nigeria certainly don't want to receive Naira. Uh, the Naira seemed to decline at 25% compounding year in, year out. They want to do business because they have to outside the U.S. dollar because the U.S. government is making them do business outside the U.S. dollar. And the only medium of exchange that has some price stability uh, and, and some liquidity is gold. Uh, so I personally see as long as the United States continues to pursue its obnoxious foreign policies, that demand for gold will be strong. Let's look at a couple of the producers uh, and let's talk about the decline. Uh, Barrick was a horrible underperformer for 10 years. And it, it, <laughs> it's viewed by institutional investors historically the same way that they would view AIDS. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the company has made remarkable uh, efforts to become a better company. But part of those efforts has been that Mark Bristow uh, has pursued assets where they are as opposed to where the market would like them to be. So his moves uh, into places uh, like Pakistan uh, have, from the market's point of view, led to the perception of increased risk. If you look at the success that Bristow had uh, before coming to Barrick uh, at Rangold, which emerged into Barrick, what you will see is that he is remarkably astute in doing business in places that other people would define as risky. So I think the market is mispricing the political risk around Barrick. It is true that uh, Barrick will have trouble maintaining production if they don't increase uh, their development spend and increase it fairly rapidly. In the case of Newmont, uh, I think what you have is Newmont acquired Newcrest. There were a bunch of holders of Newcrest who owned Newcrest because they were looking for a transaction. When they got the transaction, they sold <laughs> and they sold in Newmont shares, which is what they acquired. If Newmont is successful doing what they say they're going to do, which is focus on their tier one assets uh, and sell their tier three assets and some of their two tier assets so that they can improve their balance sheet and improve their ability to focus on their tier one assets. Uh, I say if, I'm not saying they're going to do that, but if they do what they say they're going to do, Newmont will really surprise people in the next five years. So I, I view the sell-off in Newmont as very much a one-off event associated with the acquisition of Newcrest, which I believe, by the way, was a good thing. I think you need to, it's important, I think, that you need to look at these companies one at a time. I don't think it's useful to look at the gold mining industry as a group. Uh, I, I have said before, traditionally, it's been poorly enough managed uh, and there's been enough variability in commodity price. And if you invest in the sector, you go broke either quickly or slowly. If, however, you do as I've done over 50 years, and I'm not trying to say I haven't made some horrific mistakes, but if you have done as I do, have done, which is to say invest countercyclically and invest on the basis of real true securities analysis, not merely looking to companies as a proxy for upside in the commodity price, this is a very good business. And the fact that it's cheap makes this a good entry point. So just to summarize, you are bullish on gold in the long term, not so much in the short term because you don't expect a cut in interest rates. 
Um, what about silver? What are your views there? My experience in silver has been that it lags gold, that uh, in a precious metals bull market, gold leaves and gold leaves and then silver follows. Uh, and usually by some time. What happens, however, is that after the narrative in a precious metals bull market is established by gold, when silver does move, it moves further and faster. Uh, and the real jackrabbits are, of course, the silver stocks, the last movers. Silver has to move before the silver stocks move. Uh, when the silver stocks move or when the narrative extends to silver, what seems to happen is that the combined the combined market caps of the real silver companies, you know, not the little penny dreadfuls, uh, not the silver pretenders that are looking for silver but don't have any, uh, but rather the development stage companies, the advanced explorers, the producers, the senior producers, there is not enough market capitalization in the silver space to handle the influx uh, of generalist money when it comes. And the upside explosion that you get in silver prices, uh, silver equities prices, I've seen it happen three times in my career, is truly staggering. Um, although I don't expect this event to occur for a couple of years, because I have three prior examples I can't resist uh, beginning to buy those stocks now. There's a flaw in my character, which means once they're up off the bottom, I'm psychologically unable to buy them. Uh, I'm a perpetual cheapskate uh, and a credit guy to boot. So I have to be early or else I miss the move entirely. What that move means is that I am uh, assembling a basket of silver equities with the view that I get rewarded in late 2025, early 2026. Uh, something which many people don't have either the psychological uh, or the financial ability to do. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those people, especially from a psychological point of view. <laughs> now, Rick, why did you attach 2025-2026 onto this trade? Well, if you uh, follow the logic that it's unlikely that you get a major move in the gold price, uh, without a move down in U.S. interest rates, uh, without the Fed capitulating, uh, and you believe that gold has to leave, lead silver, you can find you can sign 2024 uh, to be a consolidating rather than a rising year in gold. And by nature, if you think that silver is delayed, that takes that trade up to 2025 or 2026. If we have some exogenous shock to the system. Uh, if we have some sort of liquidity panic and the Fed reacts the same way it did last time by opening up the spigots, then all bets are off. Uh, I, I think you'll see this thing take off in the same way that gold took off in 1975. Remember, however, that I said if, uh, if the current trends stay in motion, I suspect that we'll have a lackluster year, a sideways year. I'm buying nonetheless. Things are cheap enough. And in my experience, <laughs> well, Bernard Baruch once said, uh, the only investor who absolutely bought the bottom and sold the top was a liar. It didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> and I, I suggest that market timing, that is, that assigns a higher value to anything than being approximately right, is a joke. Uh, you can't do it. Uh, particularly in capital intensive cyclical businesses, um, you have to remember the dictum, that which is, is inevitable is not necessarily eminent. The fact that you wish it was doesn't matter. Wishes aren't profits. 
you have to pay attention to the markets as they are, not to the markets as you would wish them to be. So I just want to summarize your views on commodities for 2024. Very bullish on oil, very bullish on nat gas. You're bullish on gold and silver, but more longer term. You're expecting a rather benign 2024 for those metals. And do I have all that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd rather not be constrained to 2024, although I think 2024 will be a lackluster time for precious metals. I don't see a huge upside breakout in the oil market. I just see a stupidly good business where your current income from dividends finances your quest for long-term capital gains. Uh, it's the juxtaposition of risk to reward that I love so much about the oil business. And I, I can't let you go without discussing uranium. Uh, in our previous conversations, you said the easy money for uranium has already been made. We've seen massive moves here in the last couple of years. Maybe you can just tell us briefly, what do you think of that sector right now? Yeah, when a commodity goes from hated to tolerated, the easy money has been made. And a basket of uranium juniors is up two or 300%. Uh, it was impossible to talk people into buying uranium in 2022. And now that the price is up, everybody wants to buy it. Uh, I believe that there are structural changes in the uranium business, which we could discuss in a subsequent interview. It takes 15 minutes to get through the status of the uranium market as we, as we sit. But the structure going from a spot market to a term market has profound implications for some uranium stocks, and they're all bullish. Uh, the idea that you have price certainty around the selling price of your product for five years or 10 years or 15 years means that uranium is unique among commodities businesses. This should, for the right uh, companies, lower their cost of capital because of the revenue certainty uh, and uh, provide unusually accurate forecasting around the equities. Uh, on a company-by-company -company basis, uh, what I think it means is that structurally, the sure money is ahead of us, while the big money, or at least the easy money, has already been made. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And Rick, if there was another sector like uranium was two, three, four years ago, what would it be? Well, I think if people are looking for really dramatic upside in the equities, they need to begin to pay attention to the silver equities. I think you're early. Uh, I think you always need to be early. Uh, if you and I are having a discussion 12 months for 18 months from now, the commodities that will be hated then, which is to say the commodities then that you'll want to be invested in, are platinum and palladium. Uh, which have really underperformed and will continue to underperform, and nickel. Uh, remember that my investment thesis is to love hate. Look for hate. And looking ahead, people are going to hate the nickel stocks. They're shutting down nickel production capacity worldwide. Uh, and I think once the commodity becomes really and truly hated, that it will provide the same type of upside, perhaps not as dramatic, as uranium did. Always look for hate. So, Rick, so far our discussion has been focused on resources, but many people might not know, but you're also very familiar with the U.S. banking system. And I want to get your views on New York Community Bank. It 
it's kind of ironic because a year ago, uh, it's when we had the regional banking crisis and we saw the collapse of um, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and also the demise of First Republic as we knew it. But it's kind of ironic that New York Community Bank is also getting into trouble because of the assets it bought from Signature Bank. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on this situation. And do you think there's more to come? Uh, I think there is more to come. But I think the banking business is a uniquely good business. The temptation of the banking business to be stupid because of the leverage that's available is very high. There's a few things that can go wrong with a bank. One, you can make loans against assets that you don't understand well, because the assets themselves have performed well in years past, which does not necessarily make you a more knowledgeable banker. Uh, the second thing that could go wrong, and this goes wrong much more frequently, is time spread. Uh, Banks that buy long-term assets, long-term bonds or loans with six or seven or eight-year durations that are funded with short-term liabilities, which is to say overnight deposits. If the interest rate goes up, your cost of capital goes up while the capitalized value of the distributions that you bought goes down. This is truly an ugly circumstance, and this is what brought down the U.S. savings and loan industry. This is what brought down First Republic. This is what brought down uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and is likely what brought what brings down uh, Community Bank of New York. There are a lot of institutions that have done that, which is really, truly, profoundly stupid. The prevailing deposit interest rate in the United States is about 4.15%. Uh, the prevailing lending rate in the United States geared to prime is some number uh, around 85 or 9%. The idea that you can uh, fund floating rate assets with floating rate deposits and enjoy a 400 basis point spread in the middle with 10 to 1 leverage, if you don't do anything stupid, uh, is of profound interest to me. I mean, that's, that's why at age 71, I'm starting another bank. Uh, unfortunately, the temptation to do something stupid in the banking business, to employ excessive leverage and employ these time spreads, to get into lending sectors that are hot rather than lending sectors where you have specific expertise is too high. And there is more sin in the community banking sector. You can expect more problems because there are more stupid bankers than there are smart bankers. Interesting comments. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens here in the coming weeks with this whole situation. Rick, as we wrap up, you and your team are always holding various events. What events can we look forward to in the coming weeks and months from you and your team? As you know, James, we do boot camps, which are eight and a half hour, eight to eight and a half hour long deep dives around various subjects. We did uranium when you should have been buying uranium. We've done silver. We did royalty and streaming. We did development stage companies. Because exploration is so roundly hated, the next boot camp that we're going to do is around exploration. I love hate. Uh, and I think we're going to have a real exploration resurgence uh, in the next couple of years. So we're doing a prospect generator boot camp, which is a unique form uh, of exploration company. Company, pardon me. Be April 20th. We'll do an eight and a half hour long deep dive about how to analyze exploration companies, how to invest in them, a couple of case studies. Uh, you can attend this conference in the luxury of your own home. You don't have to come to some exotic location. Importantly, uh, the tapes, the recordings will be available for a year after the event because there's no way you can absorb over eight hours all of the information we're going to give you. Importantly, too, the tuition, which is 99 U.S. dollars, 
uh, it comes with an absolute gold-plated money back guarantee. If for any reason you don't think that you got your $99 worth, email me. I'll give you your $99 back. Now, it's important to note in 30 years of money-back guarantees, I've had to refund less than one quarter of 1% of the tuition payments paid me because we focus so much on delivering value. Beyond that, of course, we have our annual Boca Raton Investment Symposium, July 7th through 11th. I humbly believe this to be the finest natural resource investment conference on the planet for various reasons. Again, you can obtain, you, you can go in person to Boca Raton, or you can attend like 1,100 other people did uh, via live stream at home. In either circumstance, you'll have access to the recordings for a very long time. And once again, the tuition is 100% refundable. If for any reason you don't believe that you got value for your subscription, I'll give you your money back. Well, those sound like amazing events, Rick. And I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today. And if anybody has an interest in either one of those events, we will put details in the show notes below. Rick, once again, thank you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, James. And I would once again invite all of your listeners, if you care about my thoughts around natural resources, you can have my thoughts about your natural resources. Go to ruleinvestmentmedia.com, list your natural resource portfolios. Please no crypto. Please no pot stocks. Please no tech stocks. Natural resources only. I'll rank them. No charge, no obligation. Ruleinvestmentmedia.com, list your natural resource stocks. I'll rank them and send you back the rankings by return email. James, I'm a big fan of Wealthion. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for making the time. We do appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Rick Rule. We seek out experts like Rick to help you navigate the financial markets. But if you need assistance in doing that, consider having a discussion with the Wealthion endorsed financial advisor at Wealthion.com. After providing some basic information, Wealthion will put you in touch with a vetted advisor. There's no obligation whatsoever to work with any of these advisors. It's a free service that Wealthion offers to anyone who has an interest. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, Wealthion.com, and also hit that notification button so you can be kept up to date on future events. We have some amazing interviews coming up in the coming days and weeks. Once again, I want to thank you for spending time with us today, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.